In this episode of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast, the Mike Patton and you practical jokes on Axl Rose. What? Give me an example of one of those. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Poor okay. Axl Rose. All right. So, okay. So, first of all, I apologize, Axl. <laughs> I can't speak for Mike Patton, though, but... Welcome to episode 114 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. This episode is part two in the Pleasant Gaiman series of interview episodes. In the very first episode featuring Pleasant Gaiman, that was back in June of 2021, that was like a month ago, we talked about her early life, her days in the kind of blossoming Los Angeles punk rock scene. We talked her music, we talked about her bands. This time around, we're going to talk to Pleasant about her writing and dancing careers for the most part. We did talk a tiny, tiny bit about her acting career, but the conversation kind of went a different way. So the focus of this interview ended up being primarily on her writing and her dancing, which is great. Pleasant is a very accomplished writer and dancer. There was plenty to talk about with her relating to both aspects of her life. Music-wise in this episode, you're going to hear two songs by the Screamin' Sirens. That's the band that Pleasant started in the early 1980s. Those songs are I Heard About You and then the song Nine Times to Live in that order, by the way, appearing kind of in between interview segments later on in the episode. Both those songs are off of the 1987 Screamin' Sirens record Voodoo. There are no ads in this episode of the Bobcast. There's no beer in the episode either. Sadly, both of those things will likely make appearances or rear their ugly heads, I guess you could say, in the next episode of the Bobcast. So why don't we get right to it? But let me say a couple words about the Bobcast Patreon page before we do move on. Go to patreon.com slash I want to party with Bob. There you can sign up for one of the Patreon tiers, a dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars a month. Those are the choices. There is a lot of great stuff happening on the Bobcast Patreon page. I got to say that there's video footage on that Patreon page of this episode in two parts. I believe it's going to be two parts. I'm not done with it yet, to be honest with you. But it does encompass the entire interview that's in this episode of the Bobcast with Pleasant Gaming. And that's only on the Bobcast Patreon page. It's not on YouTube for just anybody to see. No, not yet. Anyways, eventually it will be, though. There are bonus episodes of the Bobcast galore, like 20-something of them, including this one, ad-free, intro-free, Bob-free, more or less. Those episodes just kind of feature the interview segments, like you're going to hear coming up in this episode. That's kind of the bonus. No ads, no intros. Yeah, great stuff. Live stream events are in the works for the Patreon thing, and we've got a new thing going we can watch YouTube stuff and stuff on Hulu and Netflix together with me. I don't know if that's much of a bonus, but there it is. That's a brand new feature that we're going to do once every couple weeks or something like that. The highest tiers of the Patreon also get some kind of free merch every couple months, like T-shirts, coffee mugs, stickers, fun stuff. Sign up. It's cheap. Thank you. That's all I want to say about that for now. Here's Pleasant Gaiman to talk to us about her writing and dancing careers. Please stay tuned.
Well, welcome back. Glad to talk to you again. It's been a while. Um, Glad to talk to you too. Good, good. This is part two in a three-part series. This time I want to talk about three aspects of your life. I want to talk about writing, acting, and dancing. And we kind of touched on the writing thing and, and acting a little bit in part one, but I wanted to get a little bit more in depth on those things. And I want to start with writing. It Writing, you could say that is in your blood. I mean, your dad was a very well-known writer in, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, really. Your mom, too, wrote a book about two of your siblings, didn't she? A, a book of, about twins. Yes. And then also my mom was a dancer and a singer. So, um, oh, okay. Yeah. She was on Broadway. She sang for a lot of the old, like, um, Looney Tunes and Mary Melody songs. Um, she did voiceover singing for people in films. Um, you know, and she, she, she actually ran away from home to, uh, sing with a big band when she was like 18 or 17 or something. No kidding. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah, there's only like one person in my family that had a normal job, which was my um, my brother, rest in peace. He he was obsessed with computers when he was little, so he became like uh, you know he was teaching people in the '70s when he was like 14 and 15. He was teaching grownups how to do computer coding, and he was like a phone hacker and all that. But everyone else in my family. Um, on both on on most sides, and I say that because there was you know there's there was a lot of half brothers and sisters and stuff, but everyone is either a writer or a performer or um, you know like my my cousin runs a circus school in St. Louis. My my uncle, her father, Nat Hentoff, was a jazz critic and a writer. Wow. And um, yeah, like the whole the whole family is just like. It's like an old showbiz family, kind of. Yeah. Now, even your brother Chuck, though, you know, rest in peace, like you said, for sure. He even wrote a book that I think yeah. they were publishing posthumously for him, but it was technical. It was about yeah. some kind of technical aspects. So. Yeah, because that was his passion. That was his absolute, like, you know, art passion. Like, he saw it as art, and someone else would see it as technology. But one time, <laughs> one time, Chuck, um, he was like, I think he was like in um, sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade. And uh, he was throwing paper airplanes in class. <laughs> so the teacher told him he had to go home and write 500 times. I'm not going to throw paper airplanes in, in class. And he went to the computer lab at the university where my mom taught theater. And um, he typed it in once to the computer and then printed out like 500 of those punch cards. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and and you know that was when no one was doing computers. I mean, only like a very select few, like adult computer geeks, right? And he right. brought it in. He brought it into the class in a paper bag, and um, the teacher was like, "Where, where's, where's your assignment?" You know, and he like plopped it on the desk. <laughs> and the teacher looked at the bag in horror, opened it up, and then he. Um, he picked up the computer cards and you know that the stack was probably like almost it was probably like eight inches or a foot thick and he just looked at it and he kind of weighed it in his hand and gave my brother side eye and said okay 
he should have bumped him up to high school right then. Like, he, yeah, kid, no you're kidding. a genius, man. <laughs> yeah, there was no gifted kid programs back in those days. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, when did when did you start writing yourself? Were you pretty young when you started writing stuff? I started writing literally when I was like three or four. I mean, this is. I was I was kind of reading when I was four, but I started like I I draw pictures and then I would write in what I thought was cursive. I would just make a bunch of scribble loops because I saw adults writing like that all the time, and sure. I didn't I wasn't allowed to touch either one of my parents' typewriters, so I'd I'd do the picture and write the story on it and hand it to my mother and say read it, and she'd say I can't read it, and I'd be like why not? Like I thought she was, <laughs> I thought she was fucking with me. <laughs> <laughs> or and so then then she'd start reading it. It would be nothing to do with the story that I wrote, and um, I'd get all mad. And I was like, "Can't you see what it says? <laughs> <laughs> it's plain. It's right in front of you." <laughs> <laughs> but um, the first actual book that I wrote was um, when I was I was about eight. It was about these two sisters, and um, you know, it was it was all their whole chronicle story, and one was good and one was bad. I guess it was kind of like Snow White and Rose Red, sort of. I mean, I wasn't relating it to that, but, you know. And then um, I ripped it up and burned it a few years later because I wrote it and illustrated it. I was really sorry I did that. But um, when I started really, I mean, I wrote all the time, and I kept the journal from the mm. time I was 10 years old. And by the time I got to be 13... Like um, the day before my birthday, I wrote in it, oh, I'm going to be a teenager tomorrow. This is when all the good stuff is going to happen. <laughs> and I wasn't wrong. <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> no, I didn't prophetic. do. I knew the, the minute you turn into a teenager. But I started, um, I started writing for rock and roll magazines. And, um, you know, I was, I was obsessed with rock and roll. So I started... Um, writing things when I was about 16 because I would look at most mainstream rock and roll magazines except for like cream magazine which I which I adored because they always got it right but I, I'd like read reviews and I'd be this wasn't what the record was about what is this person crazy or or you know I would just like read the stuff that I thought that was lame that they were writing about in those magazines you know yeah. and so I started writing reviews and then um when I started having my fanzine lobotomy when I was like 17, um, I'd already been sending, I, ha I had just sent stuff out to different music papers, like local and, um, you know, magazines and stuff. Yeah. Everything I sent out got accepted. And when I was writing the reviews, it took me like 20 minutes or so to write it, you know, like a review of a show or a review of an album or something. But then I always thought typing class was boring and I would cut it constantly to like smoke pot, like off, off campus. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so I wrote the reviews in a tiny amount of time, but then I, I took a bunch of speed at night and typed them out on stolen onion skin typing paper and where if you made a mistake, you had to use that white out stuff or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but it took like all night on speed to type them out. But I sent sent it off to a bunch of papers and everybody took like they 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 said, yes, well, you know, we're going to print this. They sent checks and then they were like, um, do you have more? And so then I was like, OK, now I got my foot in the door. 
And so the next ones I wrote on lined punch hole school paper by hand and just sent those in because I figured now that they've, you know, seen my writing and they like it and they want more. And then every one of the editors called me back and said, do you think you could type this up? And I was like, oh, my <laughs> oh, typewriter's man. in the shop. You know, I'll get it fixed. <laughs> and then I was like, shit, I have to learn how to type. And then soon after that, in 1978, um, LA Weekly gave me my own gossip column, which I thought was amazing because not only was it was a rock and roll gossip column and I was going out every night to a bunch of places. Yeah. And I hadn't started yet booking clubs, but that was like, you know, that next year I started with, you know, I was already working at the Whiskey. So um, I started in 1978 booking shows and the first ones were, uh, you know, like benefits for my fanzine lobotomy. And yeah. that when you look at the um, at the lineups for those now, it seems like super famous super group, but they were just friends of mine. I mean, it would be like X, the plugs and, and the alley cats or like, the germs and you know anyway i'm digressing because i just drank a lot of coffee I hear so, you. i'm with you <laughs> so when i had the, when i had the rock and roll gossip column you know that was running every week and then i started doing features for the la weekly and then i started writing for a bunch of national um hard copy rock and roll magazines and you know i wound up writing a couple of times for rolling stone a lot for spin um, for request for for local and national magazines and sometimes international, and I just kept you know kept doing that because it was easy for me. And when I would do the gossip column, I mean I did keep a diary, but I would just sit down and write it. Um, the gossip column was called Lottie Da, and it was in the LA Weekly, and it ran for years. I I sort of stopped doing it around. I think it was like. 84 i didn't completely stop but by that time my band the screaming sirens was going on tour so i couldn't do like local stuff so other people were brought on mm. um but yeah and then i was i was booking clubs writing gossip columns writing rock and roll like reviews and doing interviews and um having having bands and then yeah it was just it was nonstop for, for years like that. And I wasn't like a normal journalist. People would <laughs> people would get all suspicious of me, like someone that I didn't know that I was supposed to interview. And um, I would be like, well, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a normal journalist. And they, they soon found that out. Like I remember um, Mike Patton, um, you know, who was in Faith No More, yeah. when we met, um, he was really, really super suspicious of me. Um, until, you know, I said, let's, let's go out and get drunk. And this is what the story will be about and will be about. And it was, we were in London. Like I got flown to London by spin to write for them. So about them, because that was like right when the LA riots were happening and they were going to come here, but they couldn't. So the, the record company flew me out. Wow. And so all Mike and I did was I took him to all these insane like gang like gangster and card shark underground stripping after hours clubs in Soho and we wrote about that and then they were on tour with Guns N' Roses and um they were playing opening for them at Wembley and he uh, like we just did all these pranks on Alex Rose. <laughs> um I mean yeah, and then other times, like I remember one time I was at South by Southwest, and uh, 
I got well, I was there with my band Hanukkah Fear Horny, which was a trailer trash band yeah, yeah. that that they wanted us to come. They asked for us to come and paid for us to come because they contacted me and they're like, Do you want to come to South by Southwest? And I was like, Is this a joke? Because that Hanukkah Fear Horny was like a sideline, super crazy project, and we always had our teeth blacked out and had black eyes and would wear like, you know, just like trailer trash, trailer trash clothes. clothes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all the, all the lyrics were X-rated, but all of us were in other serious bands, you know? And so I thought it was a joke and I was like, we're not going to pay to send in an audition cassette because that's what was getting used. And I was like, we don't care about South by Southwest. And they were like, we really want you to come. And I said, well, if we, if you really want us to come, you'll pay for us. And they said, okay. And I was like, that's plane tickets and hotel rooms. <laughs> and they're like, okay. And I was like, there's 15 of us. And they were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 15. <laughs> yeah. That's why I never wanted Hanka Fuhorni to play because in those days you had to call everyone. You couldn't just do a mass email. Right. It was a lot, it was a lot of work, but the more I said, no, like the more, the more that, um, <laughs> the more that whoever it was wanted me. And then when I would say no to like five or six or $900, which was a lot of money in those days, sure, because I really didn't see how we were going to, you know, do that. Like then people would just, you know, give it to us because I really didn't care if you're not attached to something, it doesn't matter. And then um, I also got a writing job from that, that same weekend. Um, It was my birthday weekend. And I was like dancing on top of a table at, at this place called El Arroyo. And I somehow like I skidded and I went flying like Superman across the table, knocking glasses off. And I was laughing and screaming and everyone was like pouring tequila into my mouth. And so this, so this guy um, came up to me and he's like pleasant. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'm Bruce Herring. I want you to write for Variety. And I remember saying, I already write for the Hollywood Reporter. And I don't think that I can do both. And he said, well, I really would like to have you write for it. And I was like, wait, you're asking me now? And I was like, can we talk when I'm sober? And he, because I was still laying on the table covered in booze. So then, so I said, just give me your business card. He gave me his business card and I didn't find it until two weeks after I got home. And it was like soaking wet. It's barely legible. Of my leather jacket. So I called him up and I pressed the right extension. And he's like, Bruce Herring. And I was like, hi, this is pleasant. You asked me on my birthday when I was really drunk, if you know, to write for you. Is is this still on? And he's like, yeah, when do you want to start? Wow, he made quite an impression. Like she personifies fun. I think we need to bring that fun to variety, you know? Oh, now you, I'm not going to let you off the hook of something real quick, though. The Mike Patton and you practical jokes on Axl Rose. What? Give me an example of one of those. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Poor right. Axl Rose. All right. So, okay. So, first of all, I apologize, Axl. <laughs> I can't speak for Mike Patton, though, but. Anyway, the, the story is so sick. So allegedly, um, Axel liked milk duds and didn't want anyone to touch them. And then allegedly, Mike Patton made some um, fake milk duds with a, a human waste product and put them back in the in the box. Then because 
he wasn't getting along with Axel. He asked me to allegedly like put them in the middle of their buffet and Axel was the only one allowed to touch them. So I don't, I don't know if they ever got consumed. But <laughs> oh, oh, man. Oh, boy. Oh, poor I, Axel Rose. Well, I think the statute of limitations is up. <laughs> oh, it's passed. That's like biological warfare in a way. But you Yeah, know. I know. I mean, that would, that would never, never happen now. <laughs> you can deny. Or, I mean, it shouldn't have happened then. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh. first kind of full-length book was it uh senorita sin was that your very first kind of collection yeah. of stories yes it was and that that happened at south by southwest to a different a different one than the one i described um that was put out by incommunicado press from san diego and, uh, too i think they were from san diego yeah they were from san diego gary yeah. has that he he just um said he wanted to do it and he said do you have enough stuff and i said yes and i just got it to him immediately and this was this was on hard copy papers you know what i mean like there was no 
not like emails really then yeah right 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 just letters back and forth phone calls that kind of thing yeah, yeah. so there, there was like writing and illustrations and stuff and um the front of it had a picture of me standing in front of this old vintage la mexican bar and i was i, I was wearing like total like 50s sort of true detective magazine kind of um you know underwear and my hair was up in a bouffant with lying in the back and i had one glove off like hanging down because it said senorita sin yeah and then he he put out three books for his first run at the same time and he's like wow yours is yours is like selling really really fast and i was like duh it's because of the cover yeah anyway that was that was great and then i put out um another book with him and then i put out a bunch of other books there's there's been eight eight books out that i've written or edited and i've you know i've also written for a lot of other books too like both of john Doe and tom de savia's books i wrote my own chapter yeah and i do have a book coming out soon which was supposed to already be out but um you know, there was delays because of like, not just my surgery, but my publisher, Iris Berry from Hong Hostage Press broke her elbow and, oh. you know, everything just got delayed. But my new book is called Rock and Roll Witch. It's all witchy and paranormal and synchronicity and, um, you know, just, just the wildest stories I have. But um, there, you know, all of these stories that are like just, fucking crazy, like mystical, paranormal, wild kind of stuff um, took place with people like like Belinda of the Go-Go's or Kid Congo or, you know, people, um, the Rolling Stones. I mean, wow. I mean, they're just all, so, you know, there's there's just sickness, but it was all with like rock and roll people. And, and a lot of it happened during punk rock and like, you know, over the, the past few years. So that's a collection of all of all of those stories and that's gonna yeah that's coming out in october this year or something isn't it yeah, september yeah october. yeah 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 cool we'll talk about that in the next one for sure because that's the more paranormal stuff you know but yeah. i'm looking forward to that yeah do you know senorita sin you can still buy it but it's on amazon used for 919 dollars i saw that i know I've holy got, I've, shit i've got a fucking couple of wrecked copies of it i should put it on amazon for oh, like 800 yeah. hey you know i mean part of the retirement plan is selling some of your old books maybe because it was also on some other used book site for like 760 bucks so it's out. People want it and it's they're willing to pay for it for sure. That's great. One of the things Iris um, Barry, my punk hostage press editor and I were going to do was um, like re-release some of my old books with, oh. slightly dif- with slightly different titles, you know, because you have to do that for the Library of Congress thing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like second edition or, um, you know, added to or, or you know revised yeah updated yeah, blah blah yeah, blah something yeah, like that yeah. yeah wow now you mostly write nonfiction. that's kind of your deal and what as far as your writing goes did you ever try fiction other than that first thing you wrote kind of when you were were a kid i i never did you know why i mean this uh, i'm sure i would be pretty good at it but honestly my life has been so fucking insane like i didn't intend to be a memoirist you know right but one of my favorite 
writers when I was really a kid was Anais Nin, and I was fascinated by her diaries. And I started reading her when I was around 10, which was why I started keeping one. And when I look back on my diaries, I mean, like, actually, until pretty recently, I used to write pages and pages. But when I was younger, like from from middle school all through like my bands, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, I would sit down and like hand write like 20, 25, 30 pages a night, just like wow. talking about what everyone was wearing, what the conversations were, all that, you know, just like everything in description, because I always thought it was history. And at one point, I know this is going to sound really self-important, but at one point I realized that I had seen so many crazy things that it was kind of my duty to report this kind of thing so that eventually other people could read it and understand it or or know what it was really like. And I used sure. to kid when I was a teenager, like I'd be going out and doing all this this insane stuff. And um, my mother would be like, what are you doing? You know, like blah, 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 at the Starwood at the whiskey or, you know, or, you know, what kind of craziness is happening to you on tour? And I would just say, kind of as a joke, I'm doing research, but now I know it. It, <laughs> it, was. I mean, it was, it was historical preservation and research, like Vice TV thing uh, with, you know, about the Viper Room and River Phoenix yeah, yeah. Um, just came out and, when I put, this is going to sound so dumb and modern, but like when I posted it on Instagram, um, people were commenting like, you know, you have, you, you've seen so many stuff, but so many things, you know, cause a lot of times people would see a picture of like me and Belinda from the Go-Go's or me and Kid Congo or, you know, me and Jeffrey Lee Pierce or something. And then they'd be like, wow, you've met everyone. And, and I, I don't want to say, well, I mean, it's not like I just met this person. We were roommates or we used to sleep together or we got arrested together or you know, right, we did a lot story. of drugs together <laughs> for eight years in a row. You know what I mean? Yep, like, yep. So anyhow, like after I, after that R River Phoenix um, thing came yesterday, people were like, I can't believe how many historical things that you've witnessed, you know? And that was people that maybe didn't even listen to it and didn't know that, you know, like, I literally opened the door on the sunset side of the Viper Room and practically tripped over the paramedics resuscitating him, which wow. was hugely, hugely traumatic. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, I mean, of course, for his family and stuff, but for me, because I knew him, Flea had brought him. I didn't know him that well, but Flea was doing things with him at my Ringling Sisters benefit. And, you know, and he was so and beautiful and such a bright soul, but always like kind of really messed up when I saw him, you know, so yeah, yeah. that was really sad. But I mean, that's not the only historical incident I've, I've, I mean, there's been so many like crazy things like that, that I really, in hindsight, I was like, you know, there's kind of a reason why I'm, I was seeing all this because, you know, some people that had like a rock and roll lifestyle or, you know, did anything else like I did, like, you know, toured the world for dancing or, yeah. you know, or writing. They never saw it. They never had firsthand experience, you know, like, and that was what made me different as a journalist. And you I'm, kept track of all of it too, is the thing, you know? So, yeah. 
And that was the thing. I mean, that was really kind of the question. You don't write, you never really got into writing fiction because your life and the things you wrote about were fucking, it seemed like they might as well be fiction in a way because shit was so crazy, you know? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something funny about um, about uh, the book that um, that got put out um, by Manic D Press, you know, that that book, Escape from Houdini Mountain. Yeah. With my publisher, we had a huge argument. You know, my she was like, I can't publish this as memoir. Memoir doesn't sell. I'm going to put it as fiction. And I was like, Jennifer, this is not fiction. It's, it's memoir. It's got to be memoir. And she's like, memoir doesn't sell. She kept saying that, right? So hmm. the book came out. It got amazing reviews because the stories in that book, um, which is, you know, that's available maybe not for $900. But, um, it's out there, yeah, yeah. way, way more yeah. readily Anyhow, available too, yeah. So I would send copies of the books to people so I could get a literary agent, you know? Sure. And that so many of the letters came back. I remember the first one, I was absolutely shocked. It said, it said, um, your writing is wonderful and evocative. However, your, um, your characters are unbelievable and the plots are untenable. And I would write, write back. I was like, this is a memoir. It's this not is real life. Fiction. Yeah, and Holy nobody shit. believed it. People thought I was making it up. I mean, in the industry, do you know what I mean? Right, right. Oh my I was, god, I was so mad when that happened. Oh, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't blame you. Jeez. Yeah. Can you make it more believable? No, this is real life. What are you talking about? I know. Like, how can I make this shit up? You know, I like. I really. I mean, I probably could have, but like. <laughs> You didn't have to. <laughs> Why would you bother, right? <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk. Let's move on a little bit and talk about uh, your acting career. And that has spanned also a pretty long time. I mean, your first gig as an actor was back when you were a kid, when you were a, a, a teenager, wasn't it? No, it was when I was eight. Wow. <laughs> I, I played um, Phyllis in a play called um, The Nine O'Clock Mail, like in the theater. And um, then that same year, I was in um, a, a film, like a student film at Wesleyan University, um, called Apple Tree, and it was it was about there was an orchard near my house. Anyway, it was it was based on that. But um, I started I started acting really young, and one of the reasons I started acting all the time was not just because my mom taught theater, but all I ever wanted to be was a dancer, and I used to put on shows and plays and you know and things in the garage and in the living room and I, I was like P.T. Barnum I used, to, <laughs> I used to I used to put like crayon posters up all over the neighborhood and, oh my god and say that it's free but then I would charge people to get out and I didn't know that P.T. <laughs> Barnum did that until my mom told me <laughs> Uh, that's the the world's oldest con right in some no i know anyway um i would like i would put on swan lake and we didn't have um you know like i would use whatever was lying around and make really good costumes and stuff like that but like they were always like you know from whatever was available so i had a punk rock aesthetic even when i was a little kid like swan lake the only kind of thing i had that had feathers on it was getting all this um you know, those old, old school, like 
1960s, like now would be considered uh, racist, like Indian headdresses that they used to sell at at toy stores with like yeah. red and blue and yellow feathers. But so those became like, you know, putting them together to make tutus for Swan Lake and wearing one on your head. <laughs> but, it, but it was dancing to the Swan Lake music. Anyway, <clears throat> I was so into dancing that I finally got brought to like the tiny little dance studio in, in our town. You know, um, the teacher looked at my feet like as though she was auditioning me for the Bolshoi Ballet and said right in front of me, she's never going to be a dancer. Her feet are flat. And I just went home and like wept. Oh, boy. I still kept dancing and doing stuff. But it wasn't until I was 30 that I turned into a professional dancer. And that was because some girl at a rock and roll club came up to me and I was dancing. I think it was the fishbone. And um, in the ladies' room, she asked if I was a belly dancer. And I said, no, but I always wanted to be. And um, then, then I said, why are you? And she said, yes. And I was like, I want to see you. So we liked all the same bands. Wow. I went and I saw her and then I forced her to teach me, start teaching me stuff at, the, at after parties, you know. Yeah. And um, people would think we were doing blow in a bedroom because we'd be there at like three in the morning doing like things. So I thought I was just doing it for fun. I turned my whole rehearsal space into a dance studio and invited all my girlfriends and I was the only one that stuck with it. And then next thing you know, um, (laughs) starting a dance training, a dance career with no training at the age of 30 is kind of insane. But then I started being able to tour internationally and I did that for like 15 years straight and I still do it a little bit. I sort of stopped in 2017 just because there was like a family emergency, you know, and I needed to stay home. But then that was when Bell Book and Candle started, which is an occult burlesque show that my co-producer Shauna Leilani and I put on. But I'd also had um, other dance experience in the 70s in New York when I couldn't get a job because I had pink hair and I wanted to stay there longer than two weeks. So I kept trying to get a job at Bleaker Bob's because that was the only place where you could kind of look punk rock. I couldn't get hired as a waitress anywhere, but they had a waiting list that was like two years long. Oh, my God. So Lydia Lunch told me to um, come to this place where she worked at, you know, and I could be a waitress there. And she's like, you can make a lot of money. You know, you could make like like 25 to like $100 a night, which was my rent was $25 a month if I wanted to stay in New York, right? Wow. Yeah. And so I, I looked at her all suspicious and I was like, is this a naked place? And she said, well, it's kind of like a tourist trap, but yep, it was a naked place. I mean, I mean, uh, meaning strip club. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I waitressed there for um, two nights in, in my little hot pink Capizio leotard that matched my hot pink um, crazy color hair. And then I was like, fuck this, you know, like, $100 is a lot of money. I thought it was good like two days before, but then when I saw that the dancers could make up to like $500, I told the um the boss that I wanted to dance and then I didn't have any like, you know, I I was, I, the only kind of underwear I had in those days was like 50s black lace bullet bras and garter belts and I didn't know that was a fetish item. I didn't even know what a fetish was at that point, you know? Right. I just wanted to look like a cool girl, you know, from from the, from the 40s and the 50s, and that shit was like 10 cents a piece at you know garage sales. So I had to borrow a G-string from Lydia, 
And I went and I auditioned and I ended in a split because I was always like really athletic and that, you know, they're like, okay, you're a dancer. And then, um, you know, I worked there as a dancer and then I was making so much money that, you know, I would like fly to London to see a Susie and the Banshee show. And wow. like Kid, Kid Congo and I were living on the Bowery with um, the mumps that, you know, with Christian Hoffman and Lance Loud, like in the mumps loft. And they also had a rehearsal space and like Lydia Lunch and and Teenage Jesus and her band Beirut Slump rehearsed in the basement and the wow. fat rehearsed there and, and the senders, a lot of people rehearsed there. So, you know, that just started like that started my dance career. Was, that was the was, beginning of the yeah, yeah, yeah. It was and that was I was going to ask you about that working in like exotic dancing or strip clubs or whatever mm-hmm. was kind of your real start into dancing. Yeah. And that was, that was before there was like lap dancing or, or any of that kind of stuff. So it was, it was also kind of like being a B girl, but you had to be on stage and all like Wendy O. Williams worked at the same, at the same clubs that I did. There was a whole circuit of them. So it was like Lydia, Wendy O. Williams, like a bunch of other girls in the rock and roll scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We do that with like someone would, have like a beautiful blonde for a faucet hairdo and then take it off in the dressing room. And there was like a green Mohawk under it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Well, it was a place you could go where you could get hired and you could make a lot of money. I mean, that's, that's great. If you didn't mind doing it or if you enjoyed doing it or whatever, cool. You know, why not? Yeah, it was fun. My, my only, my only, um, the only thing I didn't like about that job was like, you had to use the songs that were on the jukebox, which was stuff you know, which was disco. Like I, we all wanted to strip to the Ramones, but you know, that wasn't happening for their patrons. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Not exactly a, a very popular kind of music back there. <laughs> yeah. People would frown on that. Now yeah. for, for dancing and, you know, dancing and acting tied together. What about the movie underbelly? That's kind of a documentary of like a year in your life, isn't it? Where they yes, followed yes. you around and everything. What was, what was yes. up with that? How did that all come to be? Well, that was made by Steve Balderson, who's a director that I've worked with on so many films. I, I've lost count. Like he's he's put out a lot of films and I've been I've been all of them in all of them except for two, I think. Um so he always says I'm his muse and uh he would he would I'd always say like when I was going to the midwest to do a dance festival or something oh i'm you know why don't you come here and it'd be like that that's 900 miles away from my house because the midwest is so spread out you know like california not like the east coast anyway one one day he he called me up and he said how come you're um how come you didn't invite me to this gig and i was like because you can never come to them he's like this gig is an hour from my house it was in colorado you know so um so he said, I'm going to come up there. And then he's like, I'll film some of your um, classes, you know, if you want to use it later for something. So I said, okay. And then after the first day of filming, he said, I want to make a movie out of this. This is incredible. This is like revolutionary what you're doing. Cause I was teaching women, not just dance, but to like really be present in their bodies and to, um, you know, like to just, not be concerned with what like mainstream body image was and you know how to own the stage which like sort of also empowers you in your own life sure sure and all of that and so then he started following me followed me like um you know on this whole belly dancing cruise i was teaching at like he he went all over the country to different dance festivals 
he didn't do the footage in the in the UK and Europe, but he got people that, you know, he was working with like other directors or film students to film it. And then he put it together. So that came out in 2008. you this how did the title princess farhana come up how did you how did you how did that happen how the whole thing happen? oh okay that was that came up okay so even in the days of punk rock everyone thought pleasant was my fake name and pleasant pleasant came around because in those days there was no testing and um every woman my mom knew and her um doctor thought that I was going to be a boy because of the way she was carrying me, you know, there was nothing like that. So that was how people thought, Oh, you're carrying low. It's going to be a boy or, yeah. you know, anyway, the name Andrew was picked out for me. And, the, and when the doctor said, congratulations, you've got a baby girl. Um, my father said, Oh, what a pleasant surprise. And my mother said, I'm not naming her Andrea. I hate that name. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I had no name for a while. I was just called Baby Gaiman. And um, then finally, because my father's whole side of the family, Gaiman, is Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, that's yeah. as common of a name as like Rodriguez is for Hispanic people or something. 
Um, but so everyone was named like charity and honor and faith and stuff. So, you know, they, they picked pleasant as my name. Um, and so in punk rock, everyone thought it was a fake name. And I'd be like, why would I pick a name like pleasant when everyone else is called like, you know, vicious, vicious. or, <laughs> or <laughs> you know, like danger or, you know. And so when I started belly dancing, I was, I just used my name because I, I was like, why well, have a stage name? But I didn't realize that there was, there's no P consonant in, um, in the Arab language, you know? Ah. So my name would always be either pronounced, you know, in the clubs I was working at, everything, all the emceeing was in Arabic, you know, or sometimes Farsi if it was a Persian club or Armenian if it was an Armenian club. But hmm. my name always got mangled. So finally, I asked my bosses at one of the clubs, like, how do you how do you say pleasant in Arabic? And he said, you are Farhana. This is very happy or pleasant girl. And I had always, when I was a kid, I always wanted to have a name like my other sisters or cousins or girls. I knew a name that was, wasn't a word that had an A on the end of it. I wasn't sure about using Farhana, but I tried it. And I was in a cab with this um, Lebanese driver and we were talking about something. And he said, um, what is your name? And I said, Pleasant. And he was like, what? And I was like, Pleasant. And he's like, what? And I said, Farhana. And he said, oh, Farhana. And I was like, yes. And I was like, okay, I'm going to use this name. And oh, then, wow. <laughs> yeah. And then in those days, you know, pre-email and stuff or pre-social media, it was, it was at least locally not acceptable to have a name that another dancer had chosen as a stage name. Sure. So I didn't know there was um, a woman in in Orange County, you know, which is not LA County, but it's still local, same dance circuit, right? Sure. She, she she'd been dancing for years, and her name was Farhana. So I was I didn't want to change my name, but then I didn't have to because I got listed on a flyer um, as Princess. Farhana of Hollywood. And this came about because I was always wearing like crowns and headdresses. I would make them to go with my costumes. Right. And so that, that's why they called me Princess Farhana. That wasn't my doing. When I went to get a website, pretty shortly after that, you know, just when all the tech stuff was starting to, I had not the first, but among the first round of belly dance websites, you know, for, for you know, to promote promote yourself sure i tried to um pick farhana.com and it was taken by a plastic surgery clinic in jalalabad pakistan <laughs> <laughs> so, so so then i looked for um princess farhana and it wasn't taken so i oh. took that and then from that point on like that was my name <laughs> wow cool now belly dancing i mean that's kind of the thing in some ways, you could say that's taken you farther than anything else you've done because you've traveled all over the entire world doing belly yeah. dancing. I mean, it's maybe one of the things that you're the most known for outside of rock and roll and everything else and writing. Some people have criticized you for you kind of mixing traditional belly dancing, right? Which some people mm -hmm. are pretty diehard about, I guess. And yes, mixing, it is a cultural art. Right, right, it is. And then you will miss, mix burlesque elements into belly dancing, the way I understand it. And you've had some criticism right. about that, haven't you? 
Well, yeah, that was a while ago. That was actually probably about 10 years ago. But the, the thing that's hilarious about it is I never, ever stripped while I was belly dancing, but I was very open about being a stripper, which I became open about that because I was like, I can't be the only person doing this, you know? Yeah. And I didn't see how one career affected another career. I mean, I, I mean, I couldn't see it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So I, I wrote this really long and well-researched article for a major belly dance website. And I mean, this is historical, like little Egypt at the, you know, at the 1892 World's Fair was, you know, it was billed as being scandalous and outrageous and, and obscene, you know, mm. but that was traditional North African style folk dancing. It's just that there was movements of the hips and torso that the West hadn't witnessed. They, uh, she was completely covered and so were all of the other dancers. But since burlesque had already been going on, since 1868, so many burlesque dancers started calling themselves Little Egypt, right? Uh, <clears throat> and, still, and still happened. So it, it wasn't only that. I did all these other things like, like you know, the ballet ruse doing, um, you know, with, with Nijinsky and Sergei Diaghilev, like doing, doing complete versions of like Shahrazad, where there was nude women doing ballet on stage and, you know, all these other examples, like in the Follies Bergere and, you know, and Moulin Rouge and all this stuff. And I connected all of this stuff together and I researched and this was in hard copy books at libraries. It was, you know, so I put that all together and, and it started off, the article started off with, you know, like most belly dancers, um, I hate being confused with a stripper. Unlike most belly dancers, I am also a stripper, uh, you know? Sure, and, sure. And so, oh my God, did that cause a shit storm. And, and um, people people on this major belly dance website, which was kind of Facebook, pre-Facebook, but Facebook for belly dancers from all over the world to connect. I mean, yeah. I was getting called everything from a dirty pole dancer, which now is all completely widely accepted as <laughs> right, beautiful yeah. and athletic. Um, to like people saying I set back not just belly dance but women in general a hundred years you know and oh. Miles Copeland who hated me for some reason from rock and roll stuff um, you know had just started the belly dance superstars and he was dragging my name through the mud all over the place everywhere even though I was getting all of his belly dance superstars were mostly LA friends of mine to be in the Velvet Hammer burlesque with me but um, a lot of so I was getting all this shit and I thought I had just committed career suicide until then I got an email from Egypt asking me to come and teach there at a festival. And that is like, you know, that's like um, going to the Olympics of belly dance. Sure, like the mecca of the belly motherland, or something. Yeah. Yeah. You're teaching in the motherland. So then I was just like, then I started looking at all the timestamps and doing the math on like these people that were defaming me. And I was like, oh, this person's writing from an office cubicle. Yet I'm producing belly dance shows and touring all over the place. And now I'm going to Egypt. <laughs> you, um, you know, like, right. um, so, um, so there was that. But I also got to say that so many of the elements that I personally was the first person to bring into belly dance 
that have sort of to do with burlesque or sort of to do with retro is like the use of feather fans. No one had ever done that before. The use of those big giant ISIS wings. Um, No one had, you know, had ever done that before. And then also all the vintage stuff I was doing. Um, I would make my own costumes at reference the golden age of Egyptian cinema, which had all these Busby Berkeley style, you know, dance numbers in it. They were modeled on Busby Berkeley movies, but they were all with, with, you know, they were made in the 40s and the 50s. Actually, the golden age goes from like the late 30s to the early 70s. That's what they call the golden age of cinema. It's kind of like the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. But I would, I would, you know, reproduce exactly the hair on wigs. I would hand sew all my costumes to look exactly like them. I would do my makeup exactly like it. And I would use music from Arabic 78s that I had gotten digitized. And I would tell anyone where I was doing these shows, keep the crackles and the pops in. I want this to sound like a like a really old vintage movie. Sure. And so all of that kind of stuff since then, and that was like, you know, 10 or probably like 15 years ago now. You know, this was in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. Um, now everyone's doing all that kind of stuff in belly dancing. And I, I mean, I really got to say, like, I am giving myself credit for introducing it into that. Oh, yeah, I would, too. I mean, shoot, you. Yeah, you did groundbreaking stuff that nobody else was doing. And now everyone's like, oh, this is like the way this is the great a great way to do this. You know, so what about your future with dancing? I mean, you're recovering from uh, ankle surgery, but you're going to yeah. keep dancing. I mean, I can't ever see you stopping dancing, right? Oh no, I'm gonna keep dancing. I'm gonna um at the time we're recording this, it's the end of July. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be dancing in August. I, I did physical therapy. Uh, I've been doing it and doing exercises at home and stuff. And I know how to I know how to rehab stuff, but obviously I don't have I mean, I know how to rehab parts of my body, but for different injuries, you know, I don't have like all the equipment at home. Like I don't have Pilates stuff. I don't have weight machines. Yeah. I don't have a trampoline. All that yeah, right, stuff. right. All the gear. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I was already starting to do stuff like that in the early stages of the surgery, but walking the line between am I being a badass or am I being a total baby or am I being a complete fool or should I be doing this? So I was like stretching the ankle that got operated on and I couldn't walk on it but i could like try to like rotate the joint and do things and so yesterday in physical therapy they were like you've got perfect range of motion you've just got to get get your um ankle up to speed with the other leg and i mean that's because i was on crutches for nine weeks and all those muscles on the left side atrophied a little bit because there was weight being put on them but it'll it'll come back really quick well really the last thing i wanted to talk to you about is bell book and candle which comes up uh last wednesday yeah like you said it was this is late july 2021 you just did one last wednesday is this gonna kind of be a continuing thing for you indefinitely or is there a run oh, on it? Bell Book and candle started in 2017 oh it did oh okay okay yeah. okay so bell book and candle started just like my band and just like belly dancing and i'm not even kidding i didn't put the band and belly dancing together with bell book and candle until the bell book and candle thing happened. Um, they all came from dreams I had. And I, I mean, not, not just like daydreaming. I mean, like I would have a dream 
that I was in a band. I saw exactly what it looked like. I knew what it was going to sound like. I did all that. And that's when I had to start the Screaming Sirens. And that was in 1982. And then I didn't connect this to, but I was always dreaming about being a belly dancer from something that my father wrote in National Geographic that had a pic, like a postage stamp sized picture of a belly dancer from Istanbul in it. And I cut that out and put it in this shoe box that I saved pictures that I liked in when I was like four. Yeah. You know, my little toy scissors. Anyway, so I dreamed I was belly dancing. And then that was when this girl came up to me in the bathroom at a rock and roll club and asked me. And then I just followed it, just like I followed, like I have to start a band, I have to do this. Bell Book and Candle came to me in a dream. I dreamed because Bell Book and Candle was always one of my favorite movies. The 1958 movie with Kim Novak, right? And so I had this dream that I was in the Zodiac Club from that movie, but it wasn't exactly like in the movie. There was modern girls um, doing burlesque that looked like witches. It didn't, and I saw signs on the wall, and one said Bell Book and Candle, but it had an E on the end, unlike the movie. Right. Bell for like the French word for beautiful woman, you know? And the other one said sub rosa, which means secret. It's sort of an occulty term for hidden or, or secret or esoteric. Then I was already, um, you know, at the Green Man store, the place where I do a lot of psychic work. And uh, I didn't, a, a girl called me and asking for private burlesque lessons. And um, her name was kind of common. And she was calling me Princess Farhana on the phone, not pleasant. And it wasn't until we met in the studio that I realized it was a girl I knew from the green man who was working there as a psychic, you know? And wow. so her name was Shana. She's, she's my co-producer, but so she wanted to work on this voodoo number. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. And so she, she took direction better than almost any other student I've ever worked with. And she'd only been dancing for about a year, a year and a half, like doing burlesque, but she took, stage direction so well and she had a lot of personality and she really you know she was really like extraordinary as a as a student so i was like this girl's really gonna go far then then she asked me to dance at a um a birthday party she was having at this little dive bar and um so yeah she said come and dance and i came to dance for her birthday and just like in my dream there was some of the psychics from the green men there doing readings. And I was, holy shit, this is exactly like the dream I had. Wow. And, and then I was like, I can't tell it to Shauna now in my head because she was wasted. It was her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so I waited a day or two, you know, for her to recover. And I was like, Hey, I had this idea for a burlesque show that has like psychics at it and stuff. And do you want to be my co-producer? I'll handle the dancers and you can handle the psychics and she said oh yeah so then we went all over LA because I basically had been on the road non-stop this was like in 2017 I had just you know started staying home like I told you a little bit earlier yeah yeah so we were looking for all these venues that had a quiet place for psychics but a nice raised stage with like good sound and lights every club we looked at and we were going out to sometimes three venues and I had one or the other, not both. Yeah. But I kept thinking of El Cid, which is a place that I had been doing shows at for like the past 30 or 35 years. You yeah. Know, you were, you would be booking and stuff there too. So yeah. Yeah. But that, but that's now I wasn't doing it then. Right. Uh. I had just, I loved it as a venue because it was historic and beautiful. 
Anyway, I finally, I woke up one day and I had this voice in my head. This was after Shauna and I decided to do a show. It's in call Lena. Lena will help you. Lena's going to know what to do with the show. Lena's going to help you. And Lena is Lena Lacaro, who's like the, the um, culture editor of the LA Weekly now, but we've known each other since the 80s. Wow. I hadn't talked to her in probably five to seven years because of being on the road. I, you know, didn't talk to a lot of people because I was constantly in foreign countries. So the voice in my head was so fucking loud, just screaming like like when you get a psychic download, you have to call Lena, call her, she's gonna help you with the show. So I finally texted what I hoped was her number and I was like, hey, if this is Lena, um, give me a call. I've got an idea, I wanna run by you. Less than five minutes later, the phone rang, it was Lena. We caught up for a few minutes and she said, what did you wanna run by me? And I said, I have this idea for a show and I told her the whole idea, you know, it's going to be like, a, it's going to be an occult burlesque show with, with beautiful witches, you know, it's going to be like everything from classic, like 20s to 50s kind of burlesque to like goth stuff, industrial, fairy tale fantasies, you know, rituals, there's going to be rituals and a psychic, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh my God, that sounds fucking amazing. And then um, she's like, where are you going to do it? And I said, well, that's what I thought you could help me with. Like, I've, I've looked at a million venues and, you know, I explained the whole thing to her. Right. And I said, but I keep coming back to one place. And she said, what place is that? And I said, El Cid. Phone went, look, I'm getting goosebumps now. The phone went so, <laughs> so dead quiet. She said, did anyone tell you I started booking it last night? And I screamed, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> at the top of my lungs. And I was like, no. And she's like, yes. And I was like, shut the fuck up. And she's like, no, really. And, and, and you know, then I realized that's why that voice was there. And then um, she's like, I have a date in two weeks. Do you want to take it? And I said, only if I can get the third Wednesday of all summer long, because I think this will turn into a thing. And she said, I don't know if the, if the owner will go for it. So then she like called the owner the owner's father, I didn't know this, like knew who I was from the eighties and putting on shows. And he was like, yeah, give pleasant. Oh, do it for wants. her. Yeah. 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 Let her. So Within two weeks, I booked the show, promoted it. The first one sold out. And then it just kept going like that. And then the whole first year people asked Shauna and I, how long we planned it because it coincided with every dark moon and every fucking solstice of the year. Oh my and God. Yeah, and this was just, and see, I'm just, this was just a fucking accident. It right. was just like, it was just, and you know, and this year they're asking now too, because when people look at the dates, it's again, it's like autumn equinox, but it's always on the full moon now. <laughs> Holy <laughs> cow, wow. Yeah, so I mean, this was just meant to be, and this is also, this is why, why do I need to write fiction? <laughs> you don't. You absolutely don't at all. No, never. Don't. I would, yeah, I would definitely say you have no reason to whatsoever. Holy cow. I. It wasn't until that stuff happened with Bell Book and Candle that I realized it was exactly the same with the Screaming Sirens and Belly Dance. And they were all about 15 years apart. And all of these things happened from dreams, which I really think we're not, I don't know if it was my subconscious manifesting it or if it was actually like spirit telling me to do something. Right. But I did, I just said yes to everything. I was like, I have to do this each time. And I was convicted of it, but I did not relate 
the band and belly dancing until Bell Book and Candle started. And it was, I realized it was the whole same trajectory as the other things. And so this is also one of the reasons why when people look at my career, they can't figure out how this shit makes sense. But I, it makes total sense to me. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The trajectory of your life and your career. It's interesting. It seems like maybe it's up and down in some ways, right? But like you said, holy cow, it's really magical, I think. And we'll leave off on that for this one. And I think we'll catch up on the next one and talk more about magic and actually, you know, more occult and paranormal stuff for the final episode in the series. So, yeah. Well, awesome. It's great to talk to you again. It was really good to talk to you, too. Thank you so much to Pleasant Gaming for taking the time to talk to me for this episode of the Bobcast. I love talking to Pleasant. She has so many just insane and hilarious stories. The Milk Dud story with Mike Patton and Axel Rose. Oh my God. Wow. The getting offered to write for Variety Magazine, the way she got that offer. That's pretty good. Those stories are just a small sample of the magical and mayhem-filled life of Pleasant Gaming. I mean, besides hearing those stories here on the Bobcast, you can also read a bunch of stories from Pleasant's life in one of her many books. Now, finding a copy of some of those books might be a little tough, like we talked about in the interview. The one that I found, Senorita Sin, is on Amazon used for like 900 bucks. But there are some that are definitely out there, so check it out. See, I'll put links up on the Bobcast website to some places where you can buy those books. So check it out. Hopefully there are going to be some reissues of those books soon. I really want to read all those books, to be honest with you. We're going to talk more about Pleasant's upcoming book, which is about the paranormal, occult, and kind of witchy stuff in part three of the Pleasant Game and series of episodes. That's going to come out in August of 2021. Besides just the stories that Pleasant has to offer when I talk to her, I have to say this. She is an incredibly kind and nice and amazing person. So I hope you're having as good a time getting to know her a little bit better with these episodes, just like I am. I really do. That's going to do it for this episode. Until next time, thanks again to Pleasant Gaming for talking. Thank you for listening. Please remember, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please also consider joining my Patreon by going to patreon.com slash I want to party with Bob. There is video footage of this interview with Pleasant on that Patreon page, plus much more amazing and bonus Bobcast content. Please sign up. It's cheap. Thank you in advance. And thank you so much for listening to the I want to party with Bob Bobcast.